Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll be talking with esteemed art critic and New York Times bestselling author Jerry Saltz. His new book, Art is Life, looks back at the past 20 years of contemporary art. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to preview some of the plays they're most looking forward to seeing in the first part of the year. And later, after a year of watching movies, I've put together my top 10 list of favorite films from the past 12 months. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. There's no shortage of descriptors to use when talking about art critic Jerry Saltz. He often refers to himself as a failed artist. Not an unusual former occupation for an art critic. Saltz was also a cross-country truck driver for a period. That's not as common in the fine art world. The descriptor that's most often used to introduce Saltz is Pulitzer Prize winner. He received the award in 2018 for criticism. He's the senior art critic at New York Magazine and among the most well-known art critics in the country. Saltz is also a best-selling author. His 2020 book, How to Be an Artist, came out right as the pandemic started and became a big hit as many people suddenly had more time to read recreationally. His new book, Art is Life, is a collection of his past essays and reviews organized chronologically, offering reminders of the seismic shifts that have taken place over the past 20 years. As you might imagine, given some of what I've already mentioned, Saltz's personal story is quite remarkable, and it's a story that begins in the Chicago area. Born in 1951, he grew up in the Oak Park area and was part of Chicago's art scene for several years before moving to New York. I recently caught up with Saltz to talk about his new book and his formative years in Chicago. Always confident and candid, Saltz speaks his mind without care for potential repercussions, and for that we should all be grateful. Saltz was in Chicago a little while ago for a reading of Art is Life. I saw that you were just in Chicago to speak at the Chicago Humanities Festival. Are there uh, certain places you try to revisit when you're back in town? God, I love Chicago so much, Gary. I miss it bad. And if anybody listening to this will give me a job, I'm an excellent driver. <laughs> love to come back. Uh, I love Chicago. I just I went to the Shedd Aquarium. I went to the Field Museum. I went to the Art Institute. I just go everywhere. I'm a natural tourist, and um, Chicago's the best city, and I miss it. And it's where I learned about art at the Art Institute of Chicago. The first painting I ever saw that uh, went off like an atom bomb happened to be when I was 10 years old at the Art Institute of Chicago when my mother parked me there alone. When I was 10, left, and while I was walking around, I saw two paintings. And when I looked at them very carefully, it was a diptych. After about 20 minutes, I noticed that one was telling the story about the other. It was a beheading of the St. John the Baptist, where his head is in the first painting, but not in the second. And suddenly the museum turned into an ecstasy machine for me, and I thought, everything in this wormhole is telling me a story. And then, Gary, my mother committed suicide a month later. And as the son of the Great Lakes in the Midwest, in our Chicago suburb of Oak Park River Forest, my mother was never spoken of again for the rest of my life. There was no funeral. It never came up. So this trauma never happened for me, and I never thought about art again until I saw another painting in New York 10 years later when I was an adult by the same artist and a gigantic electric arc formed, and these two events set me on this bizarre destiny. You write about that experience and, and 
your time in Chicago and the the introduction, which sets the stage nicely for what's to come with your your works that you've written over the past twenty plus years. And you do kind of outline your time in Chicago and, and allude to it, but I am curious why you left Chicago for New York in 1980. A um, couple of things. I was an artist at the time, and I wanted to be a famous artist. But I also had started with some other people, an artist-run gallery in Chicago. It became somewhat well-known. Some people may have heard of it. It was called Name Gallery. I co-curated 75 shows. I curated scores of uh, jazz and blues uh, um, concerts and whatnot. But for some reason, I thought that, you know, New York was the place to go, and I left. And I was very miserable. And the same demons that speak to everybody, that spoke to you all at uh, 3.15 this morning that said, you're a bad person, you're a fake, you're actually an imposter, you don't know what you're doing, you didn't go to the right schools, you're a bad schmoozer. All of those voices, those demons spoke to me, and I stopped making art. I was an artist at the time. And so, a long story short, I self-exiled from the art world and became a long-distance truck driver. I was incredibly miserable, but I drove from New York to Florida or New York to Texas once a month, and that was my life for so long. And then one day I thought, anything in this life is better than what I'm doing now, that surely I can find a way back to the art world. I was eaten alive, Gary, by envy. I hated everybody with more money you know, uh, be better psychologies, whatever. And I thought, oh, I bet writing is easy. So at the age of 40, I taught myself to write, having never written one word in my entire life. And to finish this, as anybody that has ever written knows, writing is like the worst thing in the world. I, I, I still hate <laughs> it. That's why I say, give me a job. But I taught myself to write. And I got my act together, and I started writing when I was 40, my very first review. So as big a losers as anybody listening to this, I assure you, you could not be a bigger loser than I am. Nice. And so there's, you've got a shot if you just get to work, you big babies. <laughs> One more Chicago thing before we move on to the book. I, it was interesting to read about your uh, your relationship with the, the Field Museum. How did that connection develop? Well, in Chicago, our history then, I don't know if it's taught this way now, I believed in outsiders. It is the place where more outsiders were discovered and honored than any place in the country. I used to go to, I don't know if it's in operation anymore, but Maxwell Street, do they still have that or is that gone? They still have that, the Maxwell Street Market. Yeah, and to me, I would discover artists there, every visionaries and bluesmen, and just an incredible array of things. It was there, and I worked at Phyllis Kind, it was an art gallery back there. Phyllis Kind discovered Henry Darger, Martin Ramirez, and so many more. And so for me, Chicago, a certain insecurity that I felt coming from not the first city, made me honor things that I felt came from the outside. And I think I brought that for my, the rest of my life to my work in New York, where I'm very interested in visionaries, the self-taught losers like you and me, they had no other shot. And uh, let's just see if your mediocrity is interesting. That's what I always want to know. Yes, I mean, how hard can it be for all of you listening? If, I can, if a mediocre person like me can be an art critic that ends up winning the Pulitzer Prize, surely you can make work mediocre work at least all day today and fake enough people out where you get kind of a career if i can do it you can do it <laughs> if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek i'm talking with acclaimed art critic jerry saltz 
Your last book, the best-selling How to Be an Artist, came out just as the pandemic erupted. Was the idea for what turned into Art is Life already coming together in your head, or was it sparked by what ended up happening in the past two-plus years? I think it was sparked. I think it's a really insightful question. I think it was sparked by the last couple of years. There were two pandemics. First of all, we've all lived through a 22-year state of PTSD. No work of art made in the 21st century, from the contested 2000 election to the Bush-Cheney war machine to the arc of justice seeming to move towards that with Obama to the return of the long American night in 2016 through and past the contested 2020 election. We all went indoors the very day my book came out and I had to cancel a 45-city tour and got upset. But we all, as the angel of death walked outdoors, we all went inside. But then, even with that angel still on the streets, after George Floyd, everybody went back. And this forced a change that had been coming for a long time. In the art world, this meant, in a very short order, that the gates of apartheid, if you will, where only mainly white people were showing, and yes, we're all liberals and the good little humanists and liberals in the art world, but really, we were talking the talk but not walking the walk. And all I'll say to your listeners is, right now, we're living through the biggest change in art history I've ever seen in my life, more artists from more places are coming to the art world and be, are being seen and shown than ever before. More women, artists of color, underrepresented artists. At the same time, there's more money rushing to the art world. Maybe they're just trying to clean their conscience and, and like uh, act like they're good little humanists. For me, it doesn't matter the reason that they're buying your work. Our job as smelly shamans that live on the edge of society making medicines that we're convinced society can use to heal itself, we have to take their money. If you complain and grouse to yourself and neighbors, however, that more that so much mediocre work is getting through because of that, all this mediocre books and TVs and movies and art, my answer to you is yes. There's a lot of mediocrity being shown. However, it's always been that way. There's been mediocre white male artists. I'll name a famous artist, Sean Scully. Very famous, sells for millions of dollars, makes fuzzy boxes and stripes. I think that any listener, any, say, woman who's never been able to show, you should have a shot at being at least as mediocre as Sean Scully and have a good career because people shouldn't get the shorts in a wad. All of this will come out and be washed away in time. That quality will will out. When even a film, excuse my language, like La La Land can win the <laughs> Oscar Award for these two white, great-looking kids who come to L.A. and become millionaires and are true to their art, oh, gee whiz, someday, and I hope soon, that will be seen as a crapola film. <laughs> so don't worry about all the mediocre work. Right now, we're in the middle of a paradox where all this, even if it's right-wing money, is buying left-wing art, and I would say, take their damn money. We <laughs> are the hand, the hand that takes and let's see what we can do with it. We're not going to ruin art history, and art history is being rewritten in the present by everyone listening to this. What what an opportunity. Now you, uh, you referenced that reckoning, and it's interesting then to read through your essays because then you can kind of see like your thoughts as... Time goes on, uh, your 2006 piece, Where the Girls Aren't, you know, conveys this message uh, that seems to now be amplified, uh, though there's yeah. still a lot of work to be done. But I did, before I let you go, I, I really, the piece I think I enjoyed most was your 2017 work on the quote-unquote lost Leonardo, and I was thinking back to... <laughs> 
<laughs> to that time. And I remember being skeptical and it, it, but it felt like everything I read or watched seemed to buy into the story and gloss over any real questions about Salvatore Mundi's legitimacy. What do you remember about that time? Well, it's, it's beautiful example to bring up of that era. It's, I think it was 2017 or 18 that you said, uh, it was a wished-for Trump-era illusion, if you will, a wished-for multimillion-dollar masterpiece for the super-rich by the super-rich. And like you, I went and was reading all the press before it sold, went, walked into Christie's, looked at the painting, and all I heard myself say is, this thing is dead. This doesn't have any of the life of an old master painting whatsoever, notwithstanding being retouched. Anyway, of course, they fobbed it off on, on a Saudi Arabian sheik, and it turned out this idiot with no art history degrees, I was right. And now they can't call it a Leonardo. It's already... In, school of or thought to possibly have been touched. But that was a period, and this will pass. Money, too, will leave. That thought that by spending the most amount of money, we'd also get you into art history. Did anybody have to pay the price for fobbing off a fake Leonardo? No. And just like politicians to go along with the big lie or whatever lie a politician goes along with, they're going along to keep access, to stay in power. I'm afraid that we in the art world have the same thing. Art historians, gallerists, even artists that they had, you know, commandeered to talk about the painting. Nobody wanted to say what they kind of knew was true because they would lose access. And so the good thing about being an art critic is you make new enemies every week. But if <laughs> The art world is big enough that, you know, I lost 100 people this week, but if I do good work in my own bad work, maybe I can get back 100 people elsewhere. And I hope that all people listening to this will follow me on Instagram, where I practice daily art criticism for free. And every day, 500 people, sometimes 1,000, will come on and tear me a new one. <laughs> and there... In, in real time, that I want to show that a critic can be as radically vulnerable, Gary, as, a, as an artist, where must never, I must never be wed to an opinion. There's nothing more boring than having to be right. When, I'm, when I change my mind, I want to show people how that can work from a critic. I'm not interested in a hierarchy of authoritarian voices. I want, instead of the one speaking to the many, which has been the art critical and the power model all of our lives, I want the many to be able to speak to one another. And you can call me any name you want on Instagram. So just follow me at Jerry Saul. <laughs> I post a lot of new work, a lot of naughty things, as my idiot left-wing politics. And uh, you can't believe how fun it is. So just to, to go along with that, you, uh, and I don't want to oversimplify things, but you, you write for uh, New York Magazine, and you have this, you know, the Pulitzer Prize, so you have this clout. You can say what you feel like, um, but you got to that place kind of by doing that. That's who you are. Is it because of your life experience that we kind of like touched on your life uh, in Chicago as an artist and, and then going to, to truck driving and coming to art? cultural criticism at later in your life that you didn't worry about access? I think what it is, is all of us make art out of our weaknesses and what we can't do. Listening to me, I think you can already tell that I don't have the art history, that I don't want to wear the mantle of authority. So what I had to do is take the lack of gifts, that my, my inabilities, and make them work for me. If you look at any painting by, say, Henry Matisse, one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, I want you to notice he never drew or painted feet, because he couldn't. He just couldn't do it. 
So he found a different way to crop his painting. Or look at the great Edward Hopper, or even Goya. Their people are very awkward. It's when they get to humans that things get a little clunky. Well, whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm lazy and I couldn't learn and I'm not a good reader and I only have five days to review most shows. You have to understand, I see 25 to 30 shows a week in galleries, museums and whatnot. That's a, couple, that's a day or two right there. Then I have a few days to try to dance naked in public <laughs> where everyone's going to see me be an idiot and do the best I can. I don't have time to read a whole academic catalog that's basically most other art criticism is different than mine because it sounds like this. The late commodified object of post-Marxist capitalism interrogates the difference between nature and culture and finds a haptic, you know, you don't know what the hell it's talking about. Most criticism is that way. So I don't have that ability, but I do have the one ability, which is to talk like me. And that's all I want artists to do, that and work, 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 you big babies. <laughs> Get out of the fear loop. It's too easy to be, I'm bad, my ankles are fat, nobody loves me, I'm unoriginal. That's the price of admission to the house of art. Art is an all-volunteer army. And when people read my book, and I want them to understand that if you want to be in this army, we're desperate for you. We want you in this big, insane, dysfunctional family of misfits who live on the edge of the village of the society. And I promise you, if you have a life lived in art, it's going to be incredible. Incredible. Will you become a millionaire? Nope. Nope. Only 1% of 1% of 1% of all the artists I write about are rich or famous. The sad thing is that most of the art press, 99% of the press, is now devoted to that 0.1% of the rich people. There's a terrible cynicism that has been born in the art world where everybody thinks it's all obscene prices and ridiculous top 10 boosts and lifestyle things. All of that is fun and sexy. I want all artists to make money. The good, the bad, and the very bad. So it's not about money. Just make your work. Stay up late with other artists. Read my book and see <laughs> the incredible task you've been given. This gift that you, if you join this army where there's no pay, you will rewrite art history. I promise you it's in the offing. I thoroughly enjoyed Art is Life. I zoomed through it over the, the weekend, and uh, Jerry, I appreciate you making time to talk with me. Anytime for Chicago, my brothers, my sisters, I love us. That's our critic Jerry Saltz. His new book, Art is Life, is available everywhere books are sold. You can find his work in New York Magazine, Vulture, and on his Instagram account. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday morning, thank you. Make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. I hope you both have recovered from your New Year's Eve bash. We're very early in the new year. We thought it would be a good time to preview some of the things you both are looking forward to in the early part of 2023. In the beginning of this year feels 
very different than the beginning of last year when we were seeing giant spikes in COVID cases. Things are a little more calm. And Carrie, we'll turn to you. First up on your list is something that ties in uh, with what we were talking about uh, a few weeks ago when you reviewed that rent revival that took place at Porchlight. I brought up the, the Netflix movie titled Tick, Tick, Boom. And that's a, a film about a period of Jonathan Larson's life. Jonathan Larson, the uh, late creator of Rent. And now Boho Theater is presenting uh, Larson's musical, Tick, Tick, Boom. It's the musical, you know, and they have decided for this, which is directed by Bo Frazier, who directed Botticelli and the Fire at First Floor Theater, which Jonathan and I talked about a, a few months ago. The uh, twist here is that the cast is of trans and non-binary performers. You know, this was a piece that uh, Larson worked on prior to Rent, and it was really kind of, you know, turning 30, questioning where you're going with your life. Um, you know, are you achieving your artistic goals? Are you, you know, where are you? You know, so it's a, a coming-of-age, in some ways, piece. And I think the idea that they're doing it with um, a cast of trans and non-binary performers um, is, a, is a really interesting one. And, of course, the fact that the, the film did get some attention, I believe Andrew Garfield won uh, an Academy Award nomination for his performance, I think will we'll rightly, you know, direct some attention um, in their way. And Boho generally has a pretty good rep for doing uh, you know, musicals on the small scale. Now, this one's at the Edge Theater, which is not a super small space in Edgewater, but, um, you know, it's a proscenium. But I think that uh, it, it uh, for musical fans, I think it's one that you might want to, you know, get on your calendar and, and think about getting tickets for. You know, if I can jump in, uh, this is later on my list as, 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 I, as I wrote down uh, and, uh, my, my notes. But um, the CIBC Theater down, downtown, one mm -hmm. of the Broadway and Chicago theaters, is bringing in the touring production of 1776 for three weeks in March, March 1st to 17th only. And um, there's a similar twist. This familiar 1970s musical is about how the Declaration of Independence was written by a bunch of men in powdered mm -hmm. wigs. But in its recent Broadway revival, and this is the touring version of that, it's been given a revisionist interpretation, a la Hamilton, and uh, like Tick, Tick, Boom, as you talked about, our founding fathers are played by artists of different genders and ethnicities in this production of 1776, thereby looking a hell of a lot more like Americans look today, and uh, and a lot less like the founding fathers actually look. <laughs> So I intend to see this one. I want to see. I've heard and read a great deal about this production, and uh, it's 1776 at the CIBC Theater, which is where Hamilton played also, and that'll be here in March. Uh, but there are some other things before then. The first thing on my list, much sooner, is the Chicago International Puppet Festival, which is here for 10 days, uh, January 18th to 28th. Actually, that's, what, 11 days, 11 nights. It's presenting 18 companies from the Americas, the North and South, from Europe, from Asia, at venues across the city. Among them, uh, Chicago Children's Theater, the DuSable Museum, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Chopin Theater, and others. There are a few free events, but uh, mostly are, these are ticketed events with tickets as low as $10 up to $45. Now, this is not puppetry for children, although some of it is for children, and much of it is family-friendly, but not quite all. There are some adults-only puppets, uh, puppet performances. Every style of puppetry imaginable is uh, presented, and some you probably haven't imagined. Puppets with music, puppet shows with magic, larger-than-life puppets, uh, down to finger puppets. I've always enjoyed seeing at least a couple of the things. Uh, each year at the Chicago International Puppet Festival. And full details, and I urge you to go online, chicagopuppetfest.org. I also have a festival. Uh, this is the long-running and much-loved Filet of Solo Festival at Lifeline Theater in Rogers Park. That's running from the 13th to the 22nd of January. It's now in its 26th year. If you love storytelling, Filet of Solo is the place to be. What they've been focusing on in recent years is not just individual storytellers, but collectives of storytellers from different traditions. So they're bringing back 80 Minutes Around the World, which is stories from immigrants, Techie Lemnicki's Tell and Tales Theater, which has particularly, although not solely, focused on people with disabilities, The Sweat Girls, which is a long-running collective 
of uh, women mo- monologue performers, uh, which includes former Lifeline artistic director Dorothy Milne. I think there's probably just something for everyone at that, and you can check out lifelinetheater.com to see what you might want to uh, book in for the Filet of Solo Festival. Next on my list is uh, uh, another musical, uh, Big Fish, being presented at the Marriott Theater in Lincolnshire uh, from the end of this month, the end of January, through the middle of March. And uh, this is the 2013 musical version of the movie that a lot of people know and the novel that it was based on. Uh, And, you know, this show didn't fare well on Broadway at all. But I sure liked it when it had its pre-Broadway tryout in Chicago, and I especially thought it had a really fine score with music and lyrics by Andrew Lippa. Uh, I thought Big Fish, the musical, had heart and imagination, and that means the story did too, heart and imagination, and I'm going to go see it again at Marriott to find out if I was right. Veteran <laughs> 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 uh, Henry Godinez is the director, a wonderful actor and director, and the choreography is by Tommy Rapley, a name a lot of people don't know, but Carrie, you and I probably remember sure. him. He was a member of the ensemble of the late and much-missed House Theater of Chicago. So, uh, Big Fish, the musical, uh, ready for a second look at the Marriott Theater from the end of January through the middle of March. I would say if you live in the suburbs and you like Andy Warhol, you have a very rare opportunity (laughs) (laughs) this winter. Two different plays, kind of speculative plays about Andy Warhol, are both going up. In two different suburbs. In two different suburbs. First up is Andy Warhol in Iran at North Light in Skokie by Brent Ascari. It's set in 1976, and this play offers a fictional take on a true story. Andy Warhol, of course, the famous pop artist, did in fact go to Iran on a commission to paint the portrait of the Empress. This is pre-revolution. He's holed up in a hotel room, and that's where the drama starts. And that's about all I think we should tell you about that. Um, Buffalo Theater Ensemble at College DuPage is also opening a play called Andy Warhol's Tomato by Vince Malaki, and that runs uh, from February 2nd to March 5th. So you do have some overlap there. Now, this takes place much earlier in uh, Warhol's life. In Andy Warhol's Tomato, we meet 18-year-old Andy in the summer of 1946. He collapses from the heat while working on his brother's produce truck in Pittsburgh and is taken into the basement of a working-class bar where the owner becomes an unlikely source of inspiration for the future artist. I don't know if two plays constitutes a trend, but we're definitely having an Andy Warhol winter this year. <laughs> <laughs> I have a choice uh, also based on some true history, true events, and it's the Chicago premiere of Tony Stone at the Goodman Theater, and it it begins previews on January 28th, and it runs for a month to the end of February. And it's by a a writer and a person I really admire. Uh, uh, Full disclosure, she and I were both faculty members at the UIC School of Theater and Music, and that is Chicago-based playwright Lydia J. Diamond, who takes on some true baseball history that you've probably never heard of. It's the first woman to play professional baseball a woman named Tony Stone, and it was in the old Negro League. And I am so very happy that Goodman is giving Lydia Diamond, whose work has been nationally produced, giving her a main stage slot at last. I think it's kind of overdue. The, the director is Juan O.J. Parsons, a great veteran director who always knows what he's doing. So uh, I'm going to learn about some baseball history I don't know. Tony Stone at the Goodman Theater. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. With me are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. They're previewing some of the things they're most looking forward to at the theater in the early part of 2023. Carrie, what's up next? I have a couple revivals that I'm interested in checking out. The first would be uh, Remy Bumpo's Anna in the Tropics, uh, which is being presented from February 8th to March 19th. This is a revival of Milo Cruz's Pulitzer Prize-winning play from about 20 years ago, which we saw at Victory Gardens, I think, uh, initially, which is where Cruz was uh, a, a longtime ensemble member, playwrights ensemble member. It's a story about a group of Cuban immigrants working in a cigar factory in Florida in 1929. Uh, the factories would, in fact, hire people to read to the workers' lectors. 
And the Anna in the title refers to Anna Karenina, which one of the lectors is reading. Life in the factory begins to imitate some of the events in the novel, and of course the Great Depression and the rise of mechanization also adds tension to the tale. Laura Alcala Baker, whose work I've admired in the past, is directing this. It's been some time since I've seen it, but I remember quite liking it the first time I saw it. And then Court Theater is offering a rare, down in Hyde Park, offering a rare revival of Carol Churchill's play Fen from 1983. Uh, this is about another one about laborers, but this is ones who are bound to the land, as they call it, in rural England, in the coastal marshy area known as the Fens. Um, if you know Churchill's work, you know she writes from a particular uh, political lens, um, and I think it's been, I don't even know how long it's been since uh, there's been a production of this done it's certainly at a major theater in the city so that that's one that i'm i'm uh, i've got ticked on my calendar as uh, uh, something to watch out for good i have a, a literary adaptation that is on my list and that's villette being presented it's a world premiere looking last mm-hmm. year from february 8th a, a good long run until april 23rd april 23rd coincidentally shakespeare's birthday uh, Villette is a lesser-known novel by Charlotte Bronte, but no less improbably <laughs> romantic than Jane Eyre, and even has a ghost thrown in. So this world premiere adaptation is by Sarah Gemitter and directed by Tracy Walsh, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as usual, looking at glass, one expects a handsome production and production values and a physically dashing, dashing production. So this is Villette by Charlotte Bronte, adapted from her novel uh, at Looking Glass Theater. I also have an adaptation. I mentioned last week in our year in review how much I like the Steppenwolf for Young Adult series. They are presenting, beginning on Valentine's Day, actually, on February 14th, uh, Chlorine Sky, which Mahogany L. Brown has adapted from her own young adult novel about two girls who are friends until they're not. Uh, Friendship is also um, featured in a play by Definition Theater, Aleo, which is a play by Micah Ariel Watson, and that's opening in earlier, a little bit earlier in the month, February 3rd. This is a story about Ariel, a hopeless romantic in love with her friend Coffee, who goes on a quest to Africa that comes not just about healing her own heart, but finding her own identity as an African-American woman. Now, Definition has performed at Steppenwolf in the past. They're still working on, as far as I understand, opening their own theater in Woodlawn, but for this show, they're at the Revival in Hyde Park, which is a theater uh, founded at the birthplace of Chicago Improv, as they say. And they've mostly been focusing on improv and cabaret, um, but this is a, a full run of a play at the Revival in Hyde Park. Of, and it's, um, other, it's not a, the play is not a Revival. The theater is called the Revival. And that's a Leo by Micah Ariel Watson, presented by Definition Theater. Uh, my final choice for the first three months of the year is uh, a Chicago premiere at the Raven Theater in Edgewater. Uh, and uh, one of the theaters in town that will be under new artistic leadership. Uh, and the play is called Right to Be Forgotten. Right to Be Forgotten. It opens uh, February 9th and runs to the end of March. It's a play by Sharon Rothstein, who is an award-winning writer, um, and it's about social media and how the Internet never forgets. Uh, The hero is a young man who made some online error, some indiscretion. He was 17, and it's a decade later, and this error, this posting, whatever it was, we'll find out when we suppose we see the play, this posting is still haunting him. A decade later, and the play is about his battle or battles to regain his privacy. Uh, This strikes me as kind of an essential play for our present time. So I am looking forward to seeing Right to Be Forgotten at the Raven Theater in February. I guess our our only hope is that Elon Musk would acquire all the social networks and they would all just go down. (laughs) That might perhaps save us from the folly of our ways. But yes, I am also interested in that. And Raven is one of the theaters, by the way. We talked last week about changes in leadership. Cody Estel, who was their artistic director, is now up in Milwaukee, and I know they have a search going on um, for a new artistic director, but there's certainly a very strong... Uh, vibrant tradition to build on there. So. Yes, indeed. And Cody was supposed to have directed Right to Be Forgotten, but he has uh, gone on and uh, 
there is a successor uh, uh, director, uh, uh, I want to say Tanya Wolf. All right. So lots of exciting things to look forward to. And I'm sure the both of you will be reviewing some of these in the coming months. We can check off our first Dueling Critics segment of 2023. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. You're welcome, welcome. Carrie. Good to talk with you. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. We'll go from theater to film. I'm going to highlight my top 10 movies of 2022. After two straight years of limited releases, we saw several long-anticipated projects make their way to the cinema, or in some cases, streaming platforms. Once I started narrowing my list down, I realized I had a pretty eclectic mix of prestige awards contenders, mainstream box office winners, plus a horror movie and a documentary. This is a list of my favorite films of 2022, not necessarily the best films of the year, but my favorite. Starting out at number 10 is a movie called Vengeance, written, directed, and starring B.J. Novak. The dark comedy pokes fun at our stereotypes and prejudices as it relates to identity politics. Novak, who most of you will know as Ryan from The Office, plays Ben, a New York City-based journalist who unexpectedly gets drawn into a mystery surrounding the death of a young woman he had a casual relationship with. The woman's family believes they were in a much more serious relationship, Ben decides to play along with the misunderstanding to write a story and create a podcast that he believes will explore the, quote, differences in America. Of course, when he travels to rural Texas and spends time with the people who live there, he learns some valuable lessons. Vengeance is currently streaming on the Peacock platform. If you don't have Peacock, you can rent it on a number of video-on-demand platforms. Up next at number 9 is another dark comedy, The Menu, directed by Mark Mylod. The film satirizes foodie culture, class structures, and bro culture, among other things, in an hour and 45 minutes. The Menu features an ensemble cast that features Ralph Fiennes, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, John Leguizamo, and several other actors you'll certainly recognize from other projects. We're introduced to some of those characters early in the film as they board a boat that will take them to a private island to dine at the fictional Hawthorne, a proxy for the type of exclusive three Michelin star restaurants we all read about. At Hawthorne, chef Julian Slowick runs the show with a devoted, and I mean devoted staff, that puts on one dinner serving a night for 12 guests. The $1,200 price tag limits the type of clientele that can dine at Hawthorne, and the type of people in the menu who are able to afford this luxurious meal likely aren't the type of people you want to spend much time with. The highlight here is the attention to detail of the characters we meet. All of them seem like someone I've met before. I won't go into any more story details, as I think it's better to be surprised by what's on the menu. It's currently playing at select theaters and is available for HBO subscribers for free. At number 8, something a bit more serious, the fact-based drama She Said. The film is about the New York Times investigation of dozens of claims of sexual abuse at the hands of Hollywood power broker Harvey Weinstein. The Times and The New Yorker blew the roof off the story in 2017 in separate pieces, the stories ended up spurring the Me Too and Time's Up movements across the globe. She Said focuses on the efforts of two New York Times reporters, Jody Cantor, played by Zoe Kazan, and Megan Toohey, played by Carrie Mulligan. At times, She Said plays like the 2015 Best Picture winning film Spotlight. We watch as the reporters work grueling hours piecing together a story some very powerful people don't want coming out. I'm a sucker for journalism films, so it was no surprise I found this incredibly compelling, even though I knew how it would end. What was a bit surprising was the heartbreaking details that emerged and pushed some emotional buttons. She said it's still playing in theaters, you can rent it on certain video-on-demand platforms, and is available for free on Peacock. At number 7 is the horror film Barbarian, written and directed by the relatively unknown filmmaker Zach Kreger. Barbarian is one of the biggest surprises of 2022. 
We still see a lot of horror films coming out for a simple reason. They're pretty cheap to make, and they often make money. Unfortunately, quality isn't always a priority in the horror genre, given the constant demand. Barbarian, with its misleading title, is a genuine surprise. In fact, I don't want to say too much about it, because it's best you just watch it without knowing anything. I can tell you it stars Justin Long, Georgina Campbell, and Bill Skarsgård, and it involves an Airbnb property in the Detroit area. Is that vague enough for you? I don't think you're going to be able to glean anything from that, but I do recommend it. Barbarian is currently available to stream for free to HBO and Hulu subscribers. If you don't have either of those, you can rent it on most video-on-demand platforms. At 6, we have the summer's biggest hit, Top Gun Maverick. I know some of you may be thinking, huh? But watching Top Gun 2 in a theater over Memorial Day weekend was one of my favorite cinema experiences in like three years. Obviously, the first Top Gun was a massive hit in 1986, but there were some eye rolls when the sequel was announced 30 years later, and even some shrugs when its release kept getting delayed during the pandemic. But Top Gun Maverick easily flew by the competition once it opened in late May. Turns out Tom Cruise knew what he was doing by constantly delaying its opening. The jet-fueled action film helped struggling theaters turn a profit this summer. Chances are... Either you're a Top Gun fan and have already seen this, or you have no interest in seeing Maverick climb into the cockpit again, so I don't know that I need to recap too much. Maverick is still in the Navy. He still resists taking orders from his superiors. In the film, he's ordered to become a flight instructor at the Top Gun Academy, where he once attended. One of his students is his former wingman Goose's son, Bradley, played by Miles Teller. And for reasons unknown to us, Bradley dislikes Maverick tremendously. Lots of nostalgia for fans of the original, but also some new twists to keep it fresh. Top Gun Maverick is available on Paramount Plus and to rent on demand. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the art section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm sharing my top 10 favorite films of the past year. At number 5, a, a film that's gotten somewhat lost, Armageddon Time. It was written and directed by James Gray, who I interviewed on the show back in 2016 when his historical drama The Lost City of Z came out. Armageddon Time is a semi-autobiographical story of a young Jewish-American boy coming of age in early 80s New York City. The central character Paul is in the sixth grade when he makes friends with a black classmate named Johnny. Their friendship is interrupted when they get in trouble, and Paul's family decides it's best that he transfer from a public school to a prestigious Catholic private school. Some viewers may struggle with the lack of concise narrative. Instead, we're treated to a slice of life of what it must have been like for a middle-class Jewish family in 1980 Queens. For me, the highlight of the film is Paul's grandfather Aaron, played with gusto by the legendary Anthony Hopkins. Some of his lines of dialogue gave me chills as he attempts to impart wisdom on his young grandson. Paul's parents are played by the almost equally impressive Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway. At age 12, Paul is just beginning to learn some hard realities of how the world works and what's lost when you compromise the values you hold dearest. Armageddon Time received decent reviews, but hasn't done well at the box office. It's now available to rent on demand, and I highly recommend it. Numero quattro on my list is the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. The film is about the life of acclaimed art photographer Nan Golden. It premiered at this year's Venice International Film Festival and won the Golden Lion, the festival's highest honor. The intimate documentary focuses on Golden's life, art, and activism. The artist took aim at the Sackler family, whose drug company Purdue Pharma produced the opioid painkiller OxyContin. Those parts of the film are certainly compelling, given her unrelenting quest for some type of justice for those affected by the opioid epidemic. The Sacklers donated millions of dollars to art institutions all over the world. Golden was one of the first public figures to draw attention to the family's misdeeds and started a wave that led to museums and arts organizations terminating their relationships with the Sacklers. But the film also dives into Golden's own life story. She endured a painful childhood that included the loss of her beloved older sister. She perseveres in the face of incredible odds throughout her adult life, rising to become an incredibly influential photographer. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is an incredibly powerful piece of nonfiction film. It's currently not playing at any local theaters and hasn't been released for on-demand rental yet. 
HBO acquired the rights in the fall, so you might see it pop up there in the near future. Next up at number three is the film Tar. Written and directed by Todd Field, the movie is powered by a tour de force performance by Kate Blanchett. The Oscar winner plays the fictional composer and conductor Lydia Tarr, a star of the classical music world. And that's something that should be noted right off the bat. This film is immersed in the classical music scene. So if you're a fan of classical music, you'll catch a bunch of references early on. If you're not, it might take a second to to catch up with some of the things that are going on. The world building is tremendous. Field creates a setting that feels completely authentic. Let's listen to a clip from the film. In this scene, the character Tar is being interviewed on stage, and she's talking about the role the conductor plays in leading an orchestra. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. That was Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr in the new film Tarr. I actually found that scene incredibly illuminating, her explaining the conductor's role in leading an orchestra. The Tarr character is extremely successful, the type of conductor who is globally in demand and a fierce mother figure to her daughter, who she's raising with her wife and work colleague Sharon. She's also not a fan of political correctness, perhaps as a result of coming up at a time when certain behaviors were more readily accepted. Tarr has little patience for what she might call wokeness. In a memorable scene, she completely eviscerates a student at Juilliard who refuses to conduct pieces by Bach because they're unable to connect with the legendary composer. Tar brings up some valid points about separating art from the person and questioning the judgments we pass on others. Some viewers have found this scene controversial. Others have simplified the entire film as a take on cancel culture. In my opinion, Tar is much more than that. It's an exploration of the complexities of each of our moral compasses. Ultimately, the Tar character falls from grace. That's not a spoiler. Her talent and passion for music is undeniable. Should we separate her artistic abilities from her personal mistakes? Who deserves second chances? Lots of questions, no easy answers are provided in TAR. It's currently in select theaters and available to rent on demand. Finishing with The Silver, coming in at number two is the indie film After Sun. It comes from first-time filmmaker Charlotte Wells. Set in the late 1990s, the film follows a young father, Callum, and his 11-year-old daughter, Sophie, as they spend some time together on a one-week holiday at a Turkish resort. We see Sophie filming their vacation with something some might think is a relic, a video camera. At certain points in the film, then we cut to what's likely the present day. An adult Sophie, now a mom herself, is watching the tapes from the trip. The story unfolds delicately. The relationship between this father and daughter is tender. We, the audience, can see Callum is dealing with some issues that 11-year-old Sophie might not be aware of in the moment. Meanwhile, we catch glimpses of adult Sophie still trying to understand her father and cope with her own feelings toward him. The script is subtle and nuanced. The set design and cinematography are top-notch. Big props to Paul Mezcal, the actor who plays the dad, Callum. Phenomenal job. As someone who's very curious about my own parents and what they were like as young adults, I connected with the film in a very personal way. It's remarkable how time, distance, and experience can alter your perceptions of certain memories. After Sun will be playing Monday night at the Tivoli in downtown Downers Grove, and then you might have to wait a couple weeks to rent it at home as it's not been released yet. And here we are at the end. Number one with a bullet is a film called Babylon. Damien Chazelle's epic love letter to cinema isn't for everyone. Some have been turned off by its more grotesque visual elements, or dislike the underlying darkness, or simply think it's too long. All valid criticisms, but for me, they are mere blemishes of a grander exhibition of ambition that we rarely see on the big screen anymore. 
Chazelle takes big swings in this film, offering a dark but also dazzling depiction of the early days of Hollywood. Babylon seems to be loosely connected to Kenneth Anger's 1959 book, Hollywood Babylon, which details some of the scandals that took place in the film industry over a period of 50 years, starting in the early 1900s. That book is often derided, so it's it's not the source material, but I could see some connections. Chazelle's film focuses on a collection of fictional characters working in Hollywood during a period of time that starts in 1926. There are three central figures that drive most of the action in the film. Manny Torres, a young man desperate to do anything to work in pictures. He's played by newcomer Diego Calva. Next time, try softer, okay? But why, my darling Pierre, why? Walt, Walt, hey, move that microphone 45 degrees, okay? That one, neutral, okay? No, 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 no. Hey, amigo, it's not Manuel, it's Manny. Manny Torres, okay? Yeah. Okay, okay, vamos, vamos, ya, 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 vamos. Let's roll, people. Let's go. Take two. And that's Calva as Manny right there in that short clip from Babylon. The Manny character works his way up from errand runner all the way up to director and then eventually film executive. Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, is pure electricity, full of energy and determination when we first meet her on screen. Nellie's fortunes rise and fall in front of our eyes over the course of about six years. Some have speculated the character is based on Clara Bow, a gigantic silent movie star who did make the transition into talkies. And the third major character is Jack Conrad, a big silent movie star who struggles to make the transition into the sound era. He's played by Brad Pitt. The first hour of Babylon is a non-stop joyride that takes us from an almost unbelievable Hollywood party filled with debauchery and an elephant to the next day at a 1926 Hollywood backlot located in the desert where studios could shoot several movies right next to each other since there wasn't any sound to worry about. At a certain point, we're allowed to catch our breath. We start to learn a little more about the Nellie and Jack characters. And some supporting characters like Sidney Palmer, a trumpet-playing phenom, are introduced. Babylon does have a three-hour running time. I was having so much fun, I really didn't notice until about the two-hour, 15-minute mark. The film slows down a little, but it ends with a flourish that left me smiling. Also of note, composer Justin Hurwitz, who has collaborated with Chazelle on all of his film projects, is back again, and he's created a fantastic score that drives the film at a breakneck pace during its more exciting periods and then slows it down for those emotional moments. Definite Oscar contender for best score. Chazelle doesn't pull any punches highlighting some of the darker elements that are part of Hollywood's conflicted history, but he also reminds us of the joy that can be found at the cinema and the reasons why many of us still go to our local theater. It's clear the director has some strong feelings about the topic. For some people, they can love something so much that they begin to hate it. Babylon is currently playing in theaters, but likely won't be there much longer as it's underperforming at the box office. But it's my number one movie of the year. There it is, my top 10 films for 2022. A few honorable mentions. Kimmy, a film by Steven Soderbergh, Bullet Train, the Pixar film Turning Red, and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Of course, I couldn't see everything. Uh, This is a list of my top 10 from what I did see. Let me know what some of your favorites were. If you agreed with me or disagree, you can email me at gzeitik at wdcb.org. Also, a quick note, the Golden Globes are back. After taking a year off TV, the ceremony will be televised again Tuesday night, January 10th. You can watch on NBC or Peacock. And I'll post a list of my top 10 films over at theartsection.org. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Hope you stay warm. Thanks for listening.